Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the debut episode of the Moonshine and Motorsports Podcast. Now, this week, in our first episode, we're going to start at the end, at the NASCAR Hall of Fame, the culmination of the connection between Moonshine, Motorsports, and North Carolina. Now, I sat down with Winston Kelly for a conversation about those connections. I hope you enjoy early 20th century you had cars uh coming into vogue certainly moonshine had been around forever and at some point those two were going to clash how, how did moonshining contribute to the earliest days of stock car racing you know i think that's a great question rick and part of how i've always explained it is moonshine did not beget stock car racing and stock car racing did not beget moonshine but there was clearly a connection back in the day. You know, the, the moonshiners had souped up cars to try to outrun the revenuers, and they were pretty good mechanics on top of that. And it evolved over time that there were opportunities on the weekends, generally, for them to see who had the fastest car. And you know, they ended up in cow pastures, and then that evolved to people kind of making racetracks with their tractors and all that. So, you know, to me, it's just an evolution of those two worlds that had a common interest that as NASCAR, for instance, came into being, there were some of those guys with fast cars became a part of it, but the moonshiners didn't beget NASCAR, but there was that connection back in the day. Because of those kinds of routes, you were dealing with folks who weren't exactly always the most reputable folks. What kind of reputation did the racing crowd tend to have in those early days? It was a pretty rough and tumble world at that point. Well, I think rough and tumble is an accurate perspective, but I also look at them as they were kind of risk takers. They were gladiators. You might compare them to aerial acrobats. You might compare them to high wire walkers, that they were willing to go to the edge, and that's what it took with fast race cars to take those cars to the edge. The rough and tumble, you know, and the, the perception of reputations is different in every perception or every profession, if you will. And, you know, people might look at mountain people or southern people or northern people in different ways. So they may not have been as polished, but they were probably every bit as intelligent as people who were polished. Right. There were certainly moonshiners in other states, Georgia, uh, Virginia uh, in particular, and, and there were obviously other factors involved. But how did so many of the teams wind up based here in North Carolina, in the, the, the Charlotte, Mooresville, Statesville corridor? Well, I think there's a few elements to that. When you look at the moonshiners that were in North Carolina, not unlike you know what you mentioned in Georgia and Virginia and Tennessee, while I'm not aficionado, I uh, understand that the cool mountain water had a lot to do with that being a good hotbed. But when I go to the team part of it, I think you know, a lot of people have this perception that stock car racing was a southeastern sport. And while there was a lot of it there, to me it was more of a east of the Mississippi sport. There's a little bit out west, but more east of the Mississippi. And even Bill France Sr. brought people in from the northeast 
back in December 1947, and there were races in Maine, in Ohio, in Trenton, New Jersey. So the racing was east of the Mississippi. Charlotte was centrally located east of the Mississippi, and Holman and Moody was here. Holman and Moody, as you know, was a race car provider, a race parts provider, and just like businesses congregate around a BMW plant in Spartanburg, Greenville, South Carolina, the race teams kind of congregated around where they could get their parts and their cars back in the late 50s, early 60s, and it just kind of grew from there and, and became where the suppliers over time came here. So I think it's a combination uh, of that Holman and Moody part, the centrally located on the East Coast. Now, when the NASCAR <clears throat> Hall of Fame was in the planning stages, there were a handful of options for where it would be located. And I mean, in my mind, obviously I wasn't part of the decision-making process, but in my mind, there were two major candidates. I mean, you could have made a really good case for Daytona, could have made a I mean, really good case for Charlotte. Ultimately, how did it wind up here? Well, you need to understand the process. And, and I found out later on in the process that NASCAR actually started talking about this in the 2001-2002 timeframe, just evaluating the option. And, and there were a variety of discussions. You know, Atlanta had talked to them because what had been the world of Coke, that space was available. You know, we first heard about it in, in this community in the 2004 timeframe that they were thinking about doing a Hall of Fame uh, and developing a process if they even were choosing to do one. And the process being they issued RFPs to four cities, but any city that hosted a Cup Series race could present a proposal. That was the only minimum requirement. It had to wow. be in and around an area that hosted a Cup Series race. So the original proposals went out to Kansas City, Atlanta, Daytona Beach, and Charlotte. Several other cities asked for the RFP and evaluated it. The only other one that presented one was Richmond. So you had five communities, really, that presented proposals that NASCAR went and visited. And we could spend a whole podcast on why each one of them, as you referenced, had some reasons that they could be a host there. And the Charlotte effort, that RFP went out in early 2005, and throughout 2005, after they returned them to NASCAR in the May timeframe, then they did site visits and, and went through various discussions. The Charlotte effort focused on what are our strengths and advantages, not how are we better than somebody else, or you know, what are the advantages? And some of the key things that NASCAR was looking for was a sustainable, business model was community and industry support. The industry support existed everywhere because those tracks were supporting them, yeah. but the community support, uh, and then just organizational prowess. It was, you know, knowledge of NASCAR wasn't high on the list, that that would be worked out down the road. And so the advantages that the Charlotte effort uh, focused on and, and what NASCAR articulated when it was awarded to Charlotte in March of 2006 are things like that not just community support, but genuine want it. Because for the Charlotte effort, it was all about 
growing the hospitality industry, the economic impact, leveraging the fact that it's a $6 billion a year industry in North Carolina, the fact that it was a part of an organization that operated other buildings, the Charlotte Regional Visitors Authority that the Hall of Fame was going to be under and owned by the city of Charlotte, just like the convention center, the Spectrum Arena, Ovens Auditorium, Bojangles Coliseum, an organization that had operational experience and prowess and managing venues, marketing expertise and those type of things. It, there was a sustainable business model with funding for the capital aspects, but operationally uh, the Hall of Fame and the CRVA would be responsible for that. So you put those things together, the teams being here was certainly helpful wasn't the reason. So you add all that and put it into the, uh, to the bucket uh, and there were just you know more coins in the Charlotte bucket yeah. uh, than the others and, and some of those key things that NASCAR was looking for. You and I have <clears throat> been uh, documenting NASCAR history for a long time, certainly you on radio and me as a journalist. And one of the taglines that we have for the Same Vault podcast, my regular show on NASCAR history, is we're, we're a place where the sport's past can connect with its present and also its future. And, and we see that in so many different ways every day of, of the present connecting with the past. And certainly that's the mission of the NASCAR Hall of Fame. How do you do that here? Well, you mentioned the word mission, and I don't know if that was intentional or not, but if you've seen our mission statement, what you just asked is in our mission statement that we uh, believe we are, uh, and, and according to NASCAR, we are the recognized home for honoring NASCAR's legends, evolving history, celebrated heritage, and family-oriented traditions. That's the first bullet in our mission statement. So that evolving history of current celebrated heritage of the past part is intertwined together. And we do that in, in a number of different ways. If you look at the historical aspect, uh, our fourth floor, which we call Heritage Speedway, takes everybody through pre-NASCAR era, what happened you know, in, in the world, what happened in motorsports, stock car racing, through today's NASCAR is chronicled and documented all through that area. And we've always tried to stay up to date with what's happening in current NASCAR and as things happen. And there's so many different examples of that. Recently, you know, we added an exhibit for Kevin Harvick uh, in his career. We've done that in the past when the assets were there with Tony Stewart or with Jeff Gordon. Uh, Team Penske asked us to help celebrate their 50th anniversary, so that was historical yeah. to current. Richard Childress Racing did the same thing the Petties did with Richard's 80th birthday. Uh, we added uh, uniforms uh, uh, documenting and chronicling uh, Kurt Busch's career. We had Jimmy Johnson's last car. We had Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s last car. We've got Chevrolet's 800th win car in our Victory Lane area. We just completed, in partnership with Ford, an entire exhibit on the next-gen car. We've started out looking for one next-gen car, and we've got a whole area that highlights it. 
we do the National Series Champions and exhibit on that every year. And, and that came after we've been open two or three years. An exhibit on memorable moments from the previous year, whether it's a memorable race, something like the Chicago Street Race, those kind of things. So it's, it's, and that's in what we call our inside NASCAR area. And I kind of describe it as this is current, recent NASCAR and Heritage Speedway is the history. And then we've got videos throughout and we update those videos if it's things like our, uh, our introductory video that we update every couple of years to have more current highlights in that. And then of course our Hall of Honor, uh, which is our inductees, which have you know our pioneers and our more recent drivers. So it's all intertwined throughout the Hall of Fame. So you can't do a show about moonshine and motorsports, certainly in North Carolina, without talking about Junior Johnson. You knew Junior, I knew Junior, and his career spanned, spanned from moonshine steals right here to the NASCAR Hall of Fame. What should modern day fans know about Junior Johnson? That's another one we could do a whole podcast on. <laughs> well, have at it. <laughs> uh, I would say he is multifaceted, multi-talented. That's a good way of putting that. Maybe even a chameleon <laughs> yeah. as you look through his career. So starting with the driver's part, he did not race more than 20 races in the 14 years he raced, but nine times. Never raced a full season. Still won 50 races. Then as he evolved to a car owner, he won 132 races and six championships. He also was the linchpin, the catalyst, the connector, whatever you want to call it, with R.J. Reynolds and NASCAR. That when R.J. Reynolds came to him to sponsor his car and he found out the amount of money that they had to spend in marketing, he suggested the connectivity with NASCAR and introduced them to Bill Sr. and Bill Jr. when it formed what became the Winston Cup Series. He was a mechanical genius and wizard and often worked on his engines and cars after hours so nobody could leave Junior Johnson and Associates and take those, <laughs> that knowledge yeah. somewhere else. He was also a supporter of building up the industry more than one time he had more sponsors than he'd had cars and he had helped connect those cars with other teams so it would help build up the sport. You add all that together and that's why he was a first ballot first year inaugural NASCAR Hall of Famer. You know Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt were because of seven championships 200 wins, 76 wins. Junior, you add all that together to me is, is clearly why he was a first ballot Hall of Famer because he did so much in so many different areas of the sport. He really was a kingmaker because he helped put Dell Earnhardt with Richard Childress. Kingmaker, I yeah. think, is another great word. And, not, and whether they were kingmakers at Junior Johnson & Associates with Cale Yarborough and Darrell Waltrip but it was also others within the sport. And he wanted to see the sport succeed. He wanted to see individuals succeed. Junior actually helped build the steel <clears throat> that's on display here at the Hall of Fame, didn't he? He didn't help build it, he did build it. <laughs> 
And it's interesting how it happened. We knew that that was a critical story that we needed to tell and we needed to tell it the right way. And our exhibit designers had met with him along with many others as we were designing the Hall of Fame starting back in the middle of 2006. So we had the idea to ask him, can you kind of draw us what a moonshine still looked like back in those days, back in the 40s and 50s? Draw us a picture of it that we could make a graphic out of it <clears throat> or maybe even build a small replica of it. He said, sure. So somebody that was working with us, contracted at the time, had gone up to pick up some stuff from Junior uh, that he was going to bring back. And he came back and he said, got some good news, I think. What do you mean? Junior's building the steel, <laughs> but it's full size. And I don't think it'll fit in the space that we're talking about putting it in. So he said, get the dimensions, got the dimensions. We were on regular calls and meetings with the exhibit designers. Better change those dimensions. <laughs> and uh, saw, saw the, and, and realized it wouldn't fit. And as we talked to the exhibit designers and they, they were a little hesitant, it didn't take long to realize we had to do a little bit in that room where it is to reconfigure it because it was a Junior Johnson still. We weren't going to say, you know, make it smaller. We had to adjust yeah. the room. So Junior keeps building the still. He brings it down. This is going to be about 2008, and we were putting things that we were accumulating in a storage facility off-site, put it in there. So fast forward to 2010, uh, somewhere in the February-March time frame is when we were putting exhibits in uh, with what's called exhibit fabricators. And I remember our historian, Buzz McKim, called me and just said, you know, I thought you might want to know Junior's going to be coming down here in a little bit. And I said, okay, that's good. What for? He said, well, you know, we couldn't figure out how to connect everything with the still. And I called him and asked him if he could talk me through it. And he said, might be a little easier if I just came down there and hipped you. Hipped you. Yeah, there's no L in hip <laughs> up in, in, in Wilkes County. You know that. You've yeah. been up in that area. Yeah. And sure enough, two and a half, three hours later, and the only thing I told Buzz is don't touch anything if we're not there with cameras. We've got to get pictures of this. So he comes in. <clears throat> we come up through one of the back hallways, and he's like everybody else. It's a construction zone, safety vests, hard hat, and glasses, and we're walking through the third floor to go up to the fourth floor, and to see the construction workers and exhibit fabricators looking, is that who I think it is? Yeah. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers. And they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first deal they built, I bet. No, no, you know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. So he looks at it and he says, you know, you got most of the components in the right place. It's the connectivity. Uh, so I had some of the pipes pulled out, and he steps in, and he starts putting it together. You know, hand me this, hand me that. And I'm just standing there, you know, my mouth dropped yeah. open, just excited to be. And what hit me at that point is that's like if Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb oh, yeah. had designed, built, delivered, and installed one of the first exhibits that went in Cooperstown that opened in 1939. Yeah. And this is 2010, so we're 71 years later. When that process started in 2007, 
we had not even, there had been no discussions with NASCAR about the selection process. Did we think Junior Johnson was going to be an inductee? No question. Nobody thought about inaugural inductee. We were installing that in 2010. The first class, the, the process was design, designed in 2009. First class voted on in 2009. So connecting that first class dot was more happenstance, but it's still like a Babe Ruth, a Christy Matheson, a Ty Cobb doing that for the first exhibit. And it authenticates the, the realism of that part of the story and the video that goes with it that Barney Hall narrates. And people like Junior, Ned Jarrett, and Tom Higgins help articulate tells the story that we just talked about earlier of that connectivity uh, with moonshine, stock car racing, uh, and promoters. So on the Moonshine and Motorsports podcast, we're kind of starting at the end. This is, this is kind of the culmination of many, many years of, of evolution of NASCAR and everything. If some of those earliest day moonshiners and bootleg runners and everything, liquor runners as Junior would put it, um, what would they think if they walked into this facility and saw what it, what it has become? The racers, I think, would be a lot like Bill France Sr. As much of a visionary as Bill France Sr. was, I think if he were here today, he'd even say, this is what I'd hoped it would be, but it has exceeded my expectation and it has grown. And I think a lot of business are that way, how they have evolved. But the other thing, and one of the things I learned from the exhibit designers and have seen for the past 14 years since we've been open, is people that come here, and to any museum, whether they are a fan of that sport or that topic, or whether they're just visiting friends and family and looking for something to do and they're not even a casual fan, they look for some kind of personal connectivity, whether it's a home state or a hometown. So I think they'd look at it and say, hey, our role that we played in the foundation is represented here and represented accurately and authentically. I think that's what they would navigate to, that, that that's what we did that, it, that was a part of that foundation and evolution of stock car racing. How quickly could those earliest moonshiners get Junior still up and running? Well, that, that's another interesting story with Junior. <laughs> <coughs> Uh, he came and did a lot of Q&As and autograph sessions here while he was alive, and, and many of those we would do out front of the still. And it, you know, if it was a private event, they might even serve a little bit of his midnight moon. So when we were having one of those discussions, and he and I were doing a Q&A, and somebody asked if it worked, and, and I said, no, he said, no, no, on co au contraire. It's just not currently operational. <laughs> If you would let me, I could fire it up. Fire marshals might not, but it's not currently operational. So if he could get it up and running, I don't think it would take very long for them to get it up and running. And I believe him. There's no doubt in my mind uh, that if he said he could get it up and running, he would. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Winston. He is a great guy. He gave us a lot of great answers. I hope you enjoyed the debut episode of the Moonshine and Motorsports podcast. If you did, 
please give us a like, subscribe, comment. We'd look forward to hearing from you. And we'll see you next episode.